Hello, everyone. Evelyn Wallace here. Welcome back to Lifegasm Book One, Marshall's Promise. This podcast is really an audiobook, so if you're just jumping in, uh, I recommend you start at the beginning and listen through chronologically, just because everything will make more sense if that's how you do it. All right, now that I've made my standard disclaimer, it's time to get on with the story. Lifegasm Book One, Marshall's Promise, Chapter 17, The Sex Club. Holy, 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 holy. The world is holy. The soul is holy. The skin is holy. The nose is holy. The tongue and cock and hand and asshole, holy. Everything is holy. Everybody's holy. Everywhere is holy. Every day is in eternity. Every man's an angel, the bums as holy as the seraphim, the madman is holy as you, my soul, are holy. Allen Ginsberg, from the footnote of Howell. When I was a child, asleep in the back seat of my dad's secondhand avocado green diesel Mercedes, returning late at night to the Central Valley from an exhilarating and exhausting day in the Bay Area, I would inevitably wake up partially as we pulled off the highway, then again as we crept down our cul-de-sac and over the bump-bump, bump-bump of our driveway. Whatever part of me that remained alert recognized the environmental cues that signaled the imminence of our destination, and I would stumble out of the car and into bed. That's also how it happened as the train from Poughkeepsie rolled slower, bump-bump, and slower, bump-bump, into the dark underground tunnels of Grand Central's perimeter. I woke up knowing I had arrived. In this scenario, of course, I was wide awake. I was really doing this thing. I was getting off the train and walking to a sex club. I would say detrained, if we can agree, which I cannot, that denouning a thing means getting out of it. When I first met Grand Central Station, I was an insecure adolescent doing my best impression of the fashionable, apathetic New Yorkers surrounding me. I scowled clutched my bags tightly and moved with urgency, hoping the sleek-haired city folk wouldn't notice an outsider among them. Was the city I now entered the same Manhattan? It felt unrecognizably dissimilar. My nose told me I was in the same place. Trash is trash. But now that I was experiencing the city from a perspective of spiritual cleanliness, New York showed herself to be vibrant, hurried, and alive. Tonight, the city wrapped around me like a bespoke suit— welcoming me in without being too California about it. I oriented myself and walked down Lexington, titillated by my own secret lingerie and the thought of my ever-nearing proximity to a sex club, I strutted like I owned that city. Two more blocks. One more block. I tucked into a little alcove right there on the street and, Superman-style, abracadabra my train clothes into a little black dress, fishnets, and sensuous virgin stilettos. I found the address on the basement door, discreetly labeled with the club's name. Here it was, the moment that divided the unknown from the known. These moments are the thresholds of before and after, the magical doorways, the apex of the roller coaster, the cat outbagged, the transformation of ignorance to knowledge. I opened the door and walked in. Inside, there was a foyer of sorts and a large coat rack. 
It was dimly lit, forgivingly, but even in the dark, I knew this was no posh all-inclusive. It wasn't a shithole, depending on your definition of shithole. I'll liken it to the sex club equivalent of a neighborhood diner, minus the fluorescent lighting. Later, I learned that the leather clubs, bathhouses, and swingers parties of 1970s NYC had been much grittier than this place, so surely there are those of you who will guffaw at my lack of historical perspective on Manhattan filth. The greeter behind the counter said hello and asked if I'd ever been before. No, no, I haven't, I said, but I did reach out earlier to let you know I'd be coming. The greeter nodded, but clearly wasn't bothered much one way or the other about my previous contact. Are you here on your own? He asked. I screwed my courage to the sticking place. Yep, I answered. I assume that's okay. Oh, honey, that's great, he said. Welcome. As he took my coat, he started scanning the adjacent room. I'll introduce you to Marie. She'll show you around. Marie, Marie, come over here, darling. This is, what's your name again, sweetheart? Oh, yes, this is Evelyn. This is her first time here. Give her a tour, would you? Marie approached, smiling. Hi, she said enthusiastically. I'm Marie. I'm so happy to see another single lady here. How exciting. I'm here, like, all the time, so I'm sort of an honorary employee. I was so relieved. She was a personal concierge, and I was grateful to get scooped up so immediately by someone who made me feel safe. Because, hear me now, feeling safe matters. This is true everywhere, not only in sexually charged spaces. It is especially true, however, in sexually charged spaces. Marie began the tour. The first room, accessible from the foyer, had a bar. Strangely, there was no liquor for sale, which Marie explained immediately. You have to bring your own alcohol, she said, which is actually pretty great after you see how much cocktails cost in this fucking city. This BYOB policy was, I presumed, due to some fine print in New York State's liquor laws, and it lent an air of informality to the whole thing. Do you want a drink? Marie asked. I didn't bring anything, I stuttered. Oh, don't worry about that. You can have some of mine if you want anything, but no pressure. I agreed that a cocktail would be nice, and she asked the gentleman to pour two vodka tonics. This place is amazing, she continued. I moved to the city about six months ago, and I spend pretty much all my weekend nights here. All my friends are going broke and complaining about how expensive New York is, but I found a place where I can bring my own booze and not pay a cover if I get here before 10. I've been saving money like crazy. We grabbed our drinks, tipped the personal drink pourer, who I can't call a bartender lest I spark a lawsuit, and passed through another room with a bed, curtains, and a bondage cross. Fukushima, I thought. I guess those are real. The bed and cross were unoccupied, and I, rube that I was, found it incomprehensible, but exceptionally sexy, that people might at some point use them. I found myself thinking about a scene in Martha Marcy May Marlene, where a room full of couples are having one-on-one -on -one sex, but all next to each other. Technically, it's not even an orgy. From the stairs, the leader of the cult watches, we presume, without being seen. It's not a particularly graphic scene, and I hadn't consciously thought about that movie for ages. But here, now, in this sex-possible communal environment, I couldn't stop replaying it. Was this what men meant when they talked about a spank bank? In theory, I was familiar with the concept of a spank bank, but I had never consciously cultivated my own inner reel of sexually charged moments. This was probably because I'd been so ashamed to have sexual thoughts in the first place. 
especially if the sexual thoughts involved fucked-up cult sex, like in Martha Marcy May Marlene. But how unhealthy was that? I was a 36-year-old human adult, and I was ashamed at having sexual thoughts? What the fuck, right? Are human adults not supposed to have sexual thoughts? Or are they supposed to be only vanilla, traditional sexual thoughts? Or are we supposed to have sexual thoughts but just never admit to or act on them? Oh, hell no, I thought, in a fit of righteous convention rejecting. Marie continued the tour. We left the first room and passed through a small hallway. Here are the bathrooms, Marie said. There aren't any showers in here, which is sort of fucked up, but they're supposedly working on it. I guess we'll take what we can get. On the bathroom door, there was a sign that read, No sex in the bathroom. Why would people... I asked Marie, gesturing up toward the sign, when they can... I continued, gesturing toward everywhere else. I know, it's wild. They even have beds with canopies and curtains for the shy folks. But it was becoming a problem, apparently. Hence the signs. Each room was small enough to feel intimate, but not so small that we couldn't pass other patrons without respecting their personal space. On almost every wall, there were posted reminders about not being creepy and asking permission before joining any playgroups. We walked through a final room, darker than the others, where the leather couches lined the walls and a large leather ottoman took up most of the space in the center. On an oversized screen, a pornography reel was playing, which I considered a little heavy-handed. Yeah, guys, we get it, I thought. The layout of the whole club was something of an L shape, with a small outdoor courtyard taking up the empty corner of the rectangle. We started winding back to the outside space for a cigarette. The night was young, and the club was by no means full. The few people who were milling about seemed to be predominantly men, which made me doubly grateful to have been introduced to Marie right away. Later, I learned that this particular place was one of the only sex clubs in Manhattan that allowed single men entry. Most others limited their clientele to couples and single women. I've had a think on this undeniable gender discrimination, and here's what I've decided— When single men are allowed entry to a sexually charged space, the venue tends to fill up with them, and women become the disproportionate minority. When entry is limited to couples and single women, the ratio of genders tends to remain more balanced. As such, women tend to feel safe and, in general, will open up and engage more readily. Doesn't always happen this way, but we're painting in broad strokes here. And we can agree, can we not, that in the context of sexually charged spaces, it is in the best interest of all participants to create an environment where everyone, and especially women, are comfortable becoming vulnerable in the way that semi-public sex requires? It makes sense to me that many venues have addressed the feeling safe issue by disallowing single men. As we made our way to the courtyard for our cigarette break, it was clear that the masculine-feminine energies of this particular evening were utterly tipped in the masculine's favor. It made me feel somewhat guarded, but I was at my first sex club, and I wasn't going to abandon ship now. I often think that smoking is more about making little bookmarks in the night than it is about actual inhalation of chemicals. I'd probably be just as happy going outside to chew on a pencil. There were four or five men milling about the courtyard, and Marie and I bummed a smoke from one of them. The men seemed eager to engage, but I wasn't particularly attracted to any of them. Marie was more tolerant of their attention than I was, so I did my best to play the edge where polite doesn't give way to demure. One short man introduced himself as Jason, and the first thing he asked me was what I was into sexually. I found this to be terribly rude, but I wasn't going to attack the guy. It was reasonable, I suppose, that he would think the venue forgave the lack of tact. 
Look, that's a pretty intimate question, I answered. I mean, I know where we are, but we're also basically strangers. He looked sheepish. I could tell he was trying his best not to mess this up, but I also knew he was too little for me. Thanks again to Little Jack for providing that lesson. At that moment, a barrel-chested man with silver hair approached our little group. Murray lit up when she saw him and gave him a big hug and a kiss. More specifically, she gave him an elongated hug and a biting, playful kiss. I seem to recall him smacking her bum. Evelyn, she said, this is Big Frank. She didn't say any more, and I wasn't sure of their designated relationship. It's not that I needed a box to check for my own comfort, it's that I didn't want to step on anybody's toes. Not that I was too worried about toe-stepping. He was probably as old as my dad, and I couldn't imagine myself ever being sexually interested in him. I shook his hand and said hello. Big Frank was a perfect gentleman with a mischievous smile and meat-hook hands. He didn't ask me about my sexual preferences, but did ask the usual getting-to-know-you stuff, like where I was from, what brought me to New York, and whether I'd ever been to this club before. He offered me another smoke when he saw me get that I-don't-know-what-to-do-with-my-hands look, and he apologized for not being able to offer me a drink. I've been clean and sober for over 30 years, he said. I congratulated him and did the math. He was probably getting sober while I was getting born. Another woman joined our little patio group, and we came to learn that she was a professional musician who traveled extensively between Europe and the States. She rolled her eyes at America's puritanical attitudes toward sex, but expressed gratitude that New York offered a few options, at least. She seemed open to engaging with Jason and his ilk, and I was glad to have the pressure off somewhat. At one point, though, Jason kept getting closer and closer to me, inch by inch, and I kept stepping away, inch by inch. I sighed heavily, hoping he would understand that I was trying to communicate the subtle message of, give me some fucking space. That's when Big Frank stepped in without being asked and said to Jason, excuse me, do you mind taking a step back? His voice was gritty and deep, as if he were part grisly. What, what, said Jason, in what was either genuine confusion or embarrassment wrapped in playing dumb. I need you to take a step back, please, Big Frank said. He indicated with an outstretched arm and straightened elbow the invisible line that Jason was being asked to step behind. Right there, that's right. Big Frank spoke with no-nonsense authority. He clearly knew what he was doing. Oh, uh, yeah, sure, said Jason, complying, trying not to make a scene of having been alphaed. Was this how it felt to have a private security guard? It's not that I couldn't have handled the situation myself. I totally could have. Or that women need men in order to be safe in the world. We shouldn't, but sometimes do. It's just that I was grateful that a barrel-chested man with meat-hook hands was willing to tell another man to give me some physical space. Big Frank made me feel safe. And I repeat, feeling safe matters. Still, though, I knew Big Frank wasn't my type. Too old. And it was clear by the way he and Marie interacted that they had some sort of sexual relationship. She smiled slyly and exposed her neck to him. He took it in his massive paw gently but with authority, and nibbled her ear. I excused myself and went inside, scouting the room for younger men who seemed more in keeping with what I envisioned to be my type. That's when I met Paul. Paul was a handsome fellow, around my age, wearing a trendy hat and sitting by himself in the bar area. I asked if I could join him, and he was eager, but not too eager, to accept. Paul and I flirted a little, and he was witty enough to keep my attention— 
He said he'd been to this club a few weeks ago during fetish night, where a man rolled himself up in an area rug like a human burrito and laid on the floor near the bar for people to step on him. Good for him, I said, for knowing what he wants and knowing how to get it. I paused. I guess we're all just a bunch of glorious weirdos. It wasn't long before Paul and I felt our sexual attraction mounting. I asked if he wanted to join me in the back room, and he readily agreed. We sat on a leather couch in the porn room and started making out. It was so intoxicating to know that we didn't have to stop sexuality's momentum just because we weren't in a private apartment. The let's-take-it-back-to-my-place moment would never arrive. And the people who would see us were watching consensually. Playground flashers we were not, merely excited exhibitionists performing for willing voyeurs. So there we were on the leather couch, kissing and fondling, and soon I found myself lying back, fully reclined. He took off my pants to reveal my sexy underthings and started kissing my legs and thighs. I closed my eyes in bliss. The next thing I knew, Big Frank was next to me. This felt perfectly fine, and I gave him consent with my eyes and a wicked smile. All of a sudden, he struck me as exceptionally sexy. He evicted Paul from my nether region and told him to stand near my head. Spread your fucking legs, he told me, and I went limp with joy. Paul did as he was told as well, and away we went. When the escapade came to a natural end, I put my pants back on and smiled ear to ear. Holy shit, I said. I can't believe that just happened. Big Frank was sitting on my left and Paul was sitting on my right. I put my attention back on Paul because, I'll admit it, I still had my sexual blinders on. Holy shit, I said again. Yeah, that was insane, Paul said. There were like nine vultures circling before Big Frank joined in. There were what? I asked. I only had a vague idea of what he was talking about. Didn't you see? There were like nine dudes who whipped out their junk and were beating off as soon as your pants came off. They started closing in, and then bam, Big Frank swooped in and cleared them all out. Oh, man, I guess maybe I sensed that energy, but I really wasn't privy to the details. Thanks, Big Frank, I said, turning to him. He accepted my gratitude, and he growled some sweet, dirty things into my ear. Did you see that musician lady? Big Frank asked. Um, no, I said, not after I met her on the patio. Well, she seems to be having a wonderful time. She was working on five or six men in the other room. Looks like she knows what she's doing. I nodded, impressed. Glorious weirdos, the lot of us, I thought. I turned back to Paul and decided I should get his phone number. It would have been awkward not to exchange digits with Big Frank, too, and I decided that even if he weren't my preferred partner, he seemed like a good person to stay connected to. Within a few minutes, Big Frank picked up on the vibe that I was choosing Paul and, gentleman that he was, excused himself. Around then, Paul and I agreed that we would spend the night together— I told him I was staying upstate with friends in Poughkeepsie, so crashing at, quote, my place wasn't an option. I joked that I'd need to find another fellow who could take me home if he couldn't, considering a hotel room in Manhattan cost as much as my monthly rent in LeGrand would have cost if I'd been paying rent. Paul said his apartment was close and warned me that it was very small. I'm remarkably low maintenance, I bragged. All I need is a roof. (laughs) So it was all settled, I thought. We decided to hit a clothing non-optional bar just for uproarious reference before heading back to his place, and we found a lively dance hall around the corner. He bought me a drink, and I tried to seduce him on the dance floor. 
We laughed at the fact that we had just done the thing that everybody in the traditional bar looked like they wanted to do. But it was late, read just shy of 4 a.m., and things were winding down. When the bartender announced last call, I nudged Paul and asked him how far his place was. That's when things changed. Oh, well, he stammered. Well, my sister's staying with me, so yeah. So yeah, what? I asked. Sister? What the fuck? I could guess what he was trying to tell me now, but I wasn't going to let him off the hook of saying it out loud. So, well, I just don't know if it's a good idea for you to come stay, he said. Paul, are you fucking kidding me, I asked. We talked about this. I tried to recall specifically what had been said. My brain was tired and foggy, but not, thank goodness, inebriated. Two drinks over the course of five hours did not a drunkard make. I, I, I don't have anywhere to stay. There aren't any trains back to Poughkeepsie until business hours, and you know I can't afford a hotel. He shrugged his shoulders and avoided eye contact. So you're just going to, what, leave me here? I asked, trying to run the math of how much it would cost me, both financially and energetically, to find a hotel room. Inversely, I wondered how safe it was to nap at Grand Central if I needed to wait for the next train. That feels okay to you? I hounded him. You feel okay doing what you're doing? He kicked at the ground and didn't say anything. My brain was short-circuiting, and I was on the verge of tears. It felt cowardly, like he didn't have the balls to tell me earlier that he wasn't going to let me stay at his place. It was dishonest and inconsistent, the very traits I prided myself on not embodying. We can make the world whatever we want it to be, my friends. And Paul was showing me through his fucked-up behavior the kind of fucked-up world he wanted to live in. I wanted to explain to him that the problem wasn't his unwillingness to let me stay with him, but the timing and deceit of the unwillingness. But everything was so foggy, mentally, and the systems that had counted on being 20 minutes away from total shutdown were now going utterly haywire. Please help me figure this out, I said hotly to my deepest heart. Please help me, please help me, please help me. And then, dear reader, dear listener, the universe delivered a miracle. A very quick note on miracles. In my old life, I was a hater. If someone had described the following situation as a miracle, I would have taken the Bill Maher approach and said, whatever, you're just seeing what you want to see. That's just a well-timed coincidence. It's just a lucky break. But here's the truth. It doesn't have to be one or the other. You can see it as a coincidence, I can see it as a miracle, and we can both be right. But I've been on both sides of that fence, and I happen to like life better from this point of view. So, here's the miracle. My phone rang. Who the fuck was calling me at such an hour? Never mind, I didn't care. When I answered, Big Frank's comforting, masculine voice greeted me on the other end. Are you okay, baby? He said. I was just getting in my car and I had this feeling like I was supposed to call you. I almost started crying. I am so happy you called, I said. At that moment, my awareness of Paul was fully muted. I would put money on the possibility that he spontaneously vaporized. I don't know where to go, I said to Big Frank. I was supposed to, and Paul, but he didn't. I didn't even know where to start. I had a feeling something like this might happen, he said. Where are you? I'm here on, I don't know, Fifth Avenue? Fifth and, hold on. I walked toward a cross street to check my location. I'm in my car now, Big Frank said. I'm just around the corner. I'll be there in less than a minute. If I had had any sort of gut reaction to Big Frank's call other than, oh, thank God, I would have listened. But the message was clear. Big Frank is safe, and he is the help you asked for. 
I trusted that what Big Frank had already shown me of himself was an authentic representation of who he was. I trusted that most people in the world are good people. I trusted that my intuition, my deepest heart, my guiding light was correct. And besides that, I trusted that in a human world that hadn't evolved under the paradigm of private property, the act of sharing shelter wouldn't represent the same risky, revolutionary act we perceive it to be here in this world. He pulled up to the curb like an angelic taxi. Apparently, I'd developed a knack for hailing them. I thanked him for saving me, and he assured me that it was no problem. We drove in silence for a while. I just want to be clear, I announced as we crossed the George Washington Bridge. I don't do anything with my body that I don't want to do. Of course, said Frank, as if I had told him that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Good man. Right answer. Big Frank had passed all the tests, and I felt safe but delirious with exhaustion. We made it back to his apartment building, which was right on the river. Which river? I don't know. And in another promising sign from the universe, his place was clean and tidy. I texted my Legrand girls a quick pin drop of my location, because that's never a terrible idea, and proceeded to make myself at home. Frank offered to grab some sheets and blankets for the couch, but that didn't feel right to me. I told him I'd prefer to share his bed if he didn't mind, and, long story short, he didn't mind. I thought I was tired when I arrived at Big Frank's. I thought I couldn't possibly stay awake another moment. But it wasn't until many hours later, hours I didn't notice passing because they washed away in deep, dimensionless pleasure as the midday sun came thick through the windows, that I finally couldn't hold the boat against the current any longer and drifted into glorious, heavenly, post-orgasmic sleep.